0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to Luke Law, a quick deep dive into a folklore topic where I share some of the stories from around the world that have piqued my interest. This episode is a bit more all around the world for a topic than usual, as I'm looking at a fairly widespread concept. No real fixed inspiration or listener request this time, certainly no one specific event, it just kind of came to me. I wanted to look into death curses this episode. Not black magic to cause a death. But curses following on from deaths. I've got a couple of big ones here to look at, on top of some more general digging around. Bear with me on this one, as it really did spread out about in every direction this episode. I will start with something of a segue, though. Looking up the phrase death curse for extra material led to a lot of expected dead ends. The black magic I wasn't looking to focus on, very low rated horror movies, a lot of metal music but as I sifted through the obvious I found something that stood out and it kept coming back up again and again. The Scottish play. I don't quite know how exactly Macbeth got this maligned, but yelling fire in a theatre will worry thespians less than yelling Macbeth. It seems to tie into anti witch hysteria of the time a bit, and the Scottish play should only have been referred to as such in a theatre, certainly not the full title of the play unless absolutely necessary for the performance. As the story goes, a coven of witches objected to the use of actual incantations in the play, so laid a curse upon it. That in itself seems to be a bit more anti-witch hysteria, but the play certainly has an impressive disaster count. A good few centuries worth of actor injuries, and actor deaths for that matter, a link to the Astor Place riot, and on top of some incidents involving the actors getting burned from the above centuries worth of actor injuries, Whole damn theatres have caught fire when they were running Macbeth. Director Ari Aster has an anecdote about how his friend asked him not to call the play by its name, which Aster proceeded to do to mess with his friend, like pretty much anyone would give him the chance, but it didn't take long before they decided never to push it again, as a light exploded when they were trying to film a scene immediately after this. It just seemed better to leave Sleeping Curses to lie after that. Whether by overwhelming coincidence, sheer psychic willpower of everyone's belief in the curse, or actual cranky witches getting the last laugh, this is a deaf adjacent curse that gets taken very seriously. Should you accidentally use the name which you should not in a theatre, asking for the well-known curse to turn upon you, there's a procedure in place. Exit the theatre, spin around three times, spit over your left shoulder, curse, and then knock on the theatre door to be allowed back in again. Now you are suitably armed to protect yourself from a different type of death curse, on to the interpretation of the main topic I was going for. In a way, almost any haunting can be considered a death curse. Folklore around the world is filled with the unquiet dead, especially those who suffer the violent end. It's something that resonates with all people on a very primal level. A fear of violence and a fear of death, the two together make for a worrying cocktail. It really is everywhere, Pop culture embracing the idea of vengeful spirits certainly hasn't hurt the popularity of this concept. How many times have the dead gone in search of revenge across books, TV, comics and at the movies? The Headless Horseman is simple, evocative and pretty damn angry about being dead. How many ancient Indian burial grounds fight back? The underrated 2001 remake of 13 Ghosts came up with a whole menagerie of unpleasant posthumous characters. Then there's a Candyman reboot coming soon, and I doubt the titular character of the series is suddenly going to be a peaceful ghost when it drops. Not to dismiss pop culture, especially given how much I love horror movies and how it is that current stories will become tomorrow's folklore, but this theme runs deeper and older than the media surface level. Looking at the whole thing as one big picture, it certainly feels like there's an element of guilt involved. Vengeful spirits on purely the metaphorical level certainly are the consequences of misdeeds that no amount of physical might after the fact are capable of stopping. The deed is done, there's no apology big enough to undo the mistake, and the shadow it casts is long. The flying Dutchman became cursed when the Dutch captain refused to take shelter in a storm, ignoring the pleas of crew and passenger alike to instead loudly challenge God to do their worst. With the benefits of hindsight, I think we can give God the win on that one, The destroyed vessel is now a portent of doom haunting the seas until the end of time. The Bell Witch was supposed to have attached to the Tennessee farm of John Bell after he shot a strange animal on his property, going on to raise hell for four years, up to and including shaking the whole damn farmhouse. The Navajo have the Chindi, wherein speaking ill of the dead can cause an angry spirit to harass those doing the ill-speaking. La Llorona, the weeping woman of Mexico, was well known long before Hollywood's recent attempt to miss the mark of her story the Indian burial ground trope isn't confined to just movies either. The Lake Shawnee Amusement Park opened in 1920 to almost immediate disaster, and still stands abandoned now between the non-stop tragic accidents on top of the discovery the land was used as a Native American burial ground. Although it did worryingly manage to run through to the early 60s before it finally chewed enough children to force the realisation maybe a cursed funfair might not be the best way to make a living. Think to how many times you hear of a haunted prison or a haunted battleground, even hospitals, especially asylums, which had a pile of living horror preceding the shades to follow. Looking local through my home country, I think it's easier to list the castles that aren't haunted by the shocking events that nobles got up to to pass the time before TV was invented, and that amount of evil leaves an indelible stain. Such delightful examples as the Eastern State Penitentiary in Philadelphia, that when it had to abandon using solitary confinement due to overcrowding, started coming up with new punishments such as chaining tongues to wrists. The Gettysburg battlefield of Pennsylvania has a lot of people swearing to it still being haunted, and the former trench networks of the Great War across Europe don't fare much better. The ghost stories of the trenches began in the diaries of soldiers still living and fighting in them during World War I. The famous, although largely dismissed, angels of Mons' tale of phantom longbowmen supporting English is far from the only story to emerge from what was absolutely dire times of slaughter. Where miserable deaths start, the angry dead soon follow. This kind of spirit reaches back to classical era mythology too. In Greece, the spirits of specifically violent or cruel deaths were known as Keres, becoming their own kind of spectre in line with how bad their end was. The classical Roman equivalent was focused more on how the remains of a person got treated. Those without proper burial rites could be doomed to Rome as Lemures. I hope I pronounced lemurs right. It's way too easy to cross wires with the adorable fluffy lemurs on that one. That being because the Romans actually named the animal after their restless dead since the nocturnal wanderers. I especially wouldn't get the two mixed up in the wild though. One is fluffy and can be petted. The other will be a pretty damn angry shade of a millennia old Roman who's still waiting to get buried properly. As I dug deeper into the topic, it soon became clear there is an uncomfortable amount of these stories relating to women and the specific mistreatment of women, which I don't really want to tackle head on just now. Indonesia alone needs a much deeper dive, and a lot of accorded respect to the topic and traditions, that an extended introduction to a concept isn't enough room to unpack properly. I may come back to that as it's a massive topic, but I'm also not too comfortable being the one to voice these stories. I'll mull it over, and it'll take a lot of work to get right if I do go for it. I promised two big examples though, let's call them this episode's case studies. So on to the meat of it. Case study one, the Onryo of Japan. Even without growing up surrounded by the traditional stories of Japan, I guarantee most people know exactly what one is if they see one depicted in media. Pale, all dressed in white, long black hair with a life of its own, and very damn angry about their untimely demise. The Japanese horror series The Grudge is a prevalent example of this. If not the example, as the also really well known The Ring series uses a much less traditional interpretation of an Onryo. All books and films surrounding this story come from a very simple idea. That of the Juon. A Juon meaning cursed grudge, and is the idea that in a location where violent death occurred, you could then have violent ghosts who will hurt intruders. An absolutely terrifying concept, which then didn't need such effective movies to give it a signal boost, but there they are. It speaks volumes that even before the US adaptations and without the cultural shorthand of already knowing what an onryo or vengeful spirit clad in white with long black hair means in the West, pretty much anyone from anywhere can pick up a movie from that series and immediately get how much nope is on offer here. A curse from a bad end to miserable lives, so terrible that contact with this juon is unbreakable, following whoever had the poor fortune to encounter it wherever they go in the world, and upon claiming a new victim, the grudge can then infect a new household, spreading like an unstoppable supernatural infection. It makes for some pretty full on movies, especially if either the original director Shimizu or original kakao performer Takako Fuji are involved. They tapped into some deep dark fears bringing this traditional Japanese folklore to life and I massively recommend you go to the source here and pick up the Japanese original movies to get the best sense of a Jew on out of control. Case Study 2 is a hugely famous death curse, that of the desecration of the tomb of Tutankhamun, a very high profile discovery that got a lot of press coverage and pretty much everyone will have heard of the supposed curse that followed. All kinds of things got chalked up to messing with the tomb of Tutankhamun. The lord who sponsored the dig especially went through the ringer. The pet bird got eaten by a snake not long before he got bitten on the cheek by a mosquito. A mosquito bite that they then caught while shaving for good measure, which led to their dying in a delirious fever. For good measure, as there's no kill like overkill, apparently his pet dog back home died about the same time this lord died in Egypt. The radiologist who x-rayed the mummy is supposed to have died of arsenic poisoning. A rich American who visited the tomb was reported as dying of a mystery illness. There's even some particularly dumb stories about treasures from the tomb being aboard the Titanic, which is extra impressive when you consider the Titanic sank ten years before the tomb was opened. Right from the starting publicity of the dig through to modern day stories, this curse gets a lot of discussion, writer Sir Arthur Conan Doyle being a prominent voice at the time of discovery. Not much longer to go now until we'll have had a hundred years of documentaries and articles written on this. There is, of course, one big spoil sport for the whole curse of Tutankhamun there's no actual death curse in Tutankhamun's tomb. While there are pharaoh tombs with these death curses prominently displayed to try and usually fail to ward off looters, his was not one of them. The remains of Tutankhamun are just incidentally the most visible when it comes to the ensuing disasters. Plus, there was an inciting incident with this one. When the tomb was discovered, it was very high profile, being an untouched tomb filled with treasures, which meant that pretty much anyone could get in there and clean out if the original archaeologists weren't careful. So it appears that the head of the excavation team, Howard Carter, spread a death curse rumour among the press in an attempt to help keep the loot all to themselves. Not to say that the mass grave robbing of the cultures of ancient Egypt by assorted empires, mostly British, didn't deserve some serious karmic retribution, so who knows? Plundering the tomb of a child pharaoh that didn't even come with a warning label may have been the straw that broke the cosmic camel's back and repeated ass whoppings followed. You may have noticed I'm framing a lot of what happened here in terms of plunder, and that's because it really was. Plenty of archaeology is benign, but what happened to Egypt wasn't this. If you're ever bored while they're an archaeologist, try asking them how long someone has to be dead until it stops being grave robbing and becomes science. The looks on their faces can be great. In a way though, you can say that everyone involved with in the opening of Tutankhamun's tomb died. Plenty from old age, since it happened so long ago, so definitely be a little sceptical if that fact comes up. You can sometimes tell us fact straight up and still only be using it to twist the truth. The people of the time dropped like flies because medicine wasn't so great, and enough of the specific people involved here died when they were old that it wasn't much of a curse. Only six of the twenty-six present at the tomb died within a decade. Even the Lord whose death got sensationalized in the press was fifty-seven and well known for a sickly disposition following a motor accident he survived still sucks about his pets though. That's left to do for now, although I'm sure I can dig deeper on this topic if anyone's interested and lets me know. I can also very definitely take a run at black magic curses. I discarded a lot of low-hanging fruit on this one to get at the topic I was after. If you do want to contact me, there's the show's dedicated email, lukelawgsg at gmail.com, and the general show email, ghoststoryguys at gmail.com. Both myself and the main show are really easy to find on Facebook and Twitter if you want to make contact as well as a very active Instagram account a lot of the community got involved with. If you want to support the show directly, check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash ghoststoryguys. It'll get access to all sorts of GSG goodies at different tiers, my incentive being that Luke lore episodes go to patrons a month early. I'm also doing what I can to get more involved with the live shows, something I intend to keep going with as they've been a lot of fun. As ever though, the absolute best thing anyone can do to support the show is to give it a listen. Share this around if you think you may know someone who may be interested, leave a review if they get the chance to help signal boost me, and most of all, I simply hope you enjoy what I'm doing here. Goodbye for now.